This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Bill Browder. Bill's the head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, the author of the books Red Notice and Freezing Order. Now, Bill was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005 when he was denied entry to the country and declared a threat to national security for exposing corruption in Russian state-owned companies. In 2008, uh, Mr. Browder's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a massive fraud committed by Russian government officials and it involved the theft of $230 million of state taxes. Uh, Sergei testified, he was then arrested in prison without trial and in the end tortured and died under pretty horrific detention conditions where he was denied medical treatment. He left behind a wife and two children. So since then, Bill has been uh, seeking justice outside of Russia and started a global campaign for governments around the world to impose targeted visa bans and asset freezes on human rights abusers and highly corrupt officials, particularly those linked to the Kremlin. So the United States was first to impose these sanctions, and it was the creation of the Sergei Magnitsky Accountability Act, or what people now call the Magnitsky Act. Uh, That's been followed by the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, and that's now been passed in a number of countries, including Australia. Now, I caught up with uh, Bill for a chinwag about Russian sanctions, whether the world could have done more to stop Putin's invasion, what the death of Russian oligarchs tells us, what the world, including Australia, can do more of to help Ukraine and whether Russian democracy is possible. It's a really interesting chat. You'll learn a lot about the power of sanctions and Bill's an incredible guy who's done a lot of work around the world holding the Putin regime and other regimes to account. So enjoy the episode. And uh, if you haven't already done so and you're new to the show, please rate, review, subscribe and share. It really does help a lot. Uh, Thanks for supporting the show and catch up soon. Enjoy the episode. Bill Browder, welcome to Diplomates, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Great to be here. We're going to talk a lot about sanctions, but I thought as a definitional starting point uh, for some of the listeners who may not be, or have at least heard of Magnitsky, you might just explain exactly what those sanctions are and what they're designed to do before we get into how we got there and what we should be doing about them. So the Magnitsky Act is a piece of legislation which was originally passed in the United States in 2012. It's named after my lawyer, my Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky um, worked for me in Russia. I was once the largest foreign investor in the country. I discovered corruption in some of the companies I was investing in. I exposed it, and the regime turned on me. They expelled me from the country. They raided my offices. They seized all of my documents. And my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, um, investigated why they took those documents and discovered they used those documents in a complex tax rebate fraud, where a bunch of officials stole $230 million of taxes that I had paid to the Russian government from the Russian government. He exposed the crime. Um, uh, He testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested by the same officials, um, put in pretrial detention, uh, tortured for 358 days, and then ultimately murdered in Russian police custody on November 16th, 2009. Uh, After his murder, I gave up my life as a businessman, and I um, devoted my life to um, getting justice for him, to go after the people who killed him and make sure that they face justice. 
And um, that resulted in a piece of legislation that I mentioned, the Magnitsky Act. It was passed in 2012 in the United States. It freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people who commit other human rights abuses in Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin, when it was passed, went out of his mind. Uh, he um, uh, made it his single largest priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Instead of it being repealed, it was broadened in 2016. It became the Global Magnitsky Act, um, applying not just to Russia, but to China and uh, Myanmar and, and Iran and all sorts of places like that. Um, uh, it's been, it, it, we then got it, uh, same uh, legislation passed in Canada, the Canadian Magnitsky Act in the UK, uh, the EU, uh, and then in 2021, it was passed in Australia. Um, in total, there are 35 countries with the Magnitsky Act. It's now the t- it's uses the it's the template for which they're uh, uh, sanctioning all the bad Russian actors uh, who are supporting the war in Ukraine, um, and it's probably become the most powerful tool um, uh, for victims of human rights abuse anywhere. Because it used to be that if if somebody was doing something terrible in an, in a lawless country, you had no recourse um, because the country controlled their own law and their own law enforcement. But now, all of a sudden, we have this recourse, which is that almost every crime is committed in some part because of money. And all these people who are doing terrible things tend to keep their money not in their own countries, not where, where it's all lawless and there's no property rights and, and so on. They like to keep their money in safe countries where, the, where there's laws and, and, and where their money is supposedly safe. And, and what I've done is I've created a, a scenario where their money is not safe anymore. And most of these people, they value um, uh, money more than human life, and so it's a, it's a very terrible consequence for them. And and to some extent, and not a big extent, I, I don't want to overstate it, but it, it it levels the playing field. The victims have some victims of human rights abuse have something to rely on, and some hope of getting justice. And and that's the beauty of the Magnitsky Act. Well, and so before we get, you know, we you can't talk about Russia without talking about Ukraine. I certainly want to get into that, but before we get into that, just sort of as a starting point. The purpose of it clearly was originally looking at the Putin regime, but you broadened it out um, to look at, I guess, bad guys, yeah, the autocratic regimes um, that commit human rights abuses. But do you think, you know, so many financial institutions run on, for lack of a better word, dirty money from oligarchs? Do you think the financial component, the interrelationship between finance, oligarch money, odious regimes, that made this fight harder against regimes when you compare it to perhaps? the struggle in the Cold War, it seemed, to my estimation, easy for people to do it because there was no money at stake. And now when there's money at stake, people seem to go, well, we can't do these things, it's more difficult. Have you found that in your experience? And, it, and as a result, you know, continually you are, no doubt have a, a broad application, but it tends to be very narrow in its application, the people that get put on the list and, and the types of assets that are attacked. You know, I think that's a frustrating element of it. And I, I think there's a lot of um, uh, self-interest at play a lot of the time. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I, I, I spent years and years trying to get the Magnitsky Act passed in different countries. And as you say, there's all these people who are, who are feeding at the trough of Russia and other dictatorships who didn't want to, you know, upset the flow of their money. And so I had so many right. experiences of, of like, you know, these people in, in the establishment that like just trying to shun me and, and not listen to me and exclude me from this campaign because they, they, um, everyone was making money. And, but, but I'll tell you what's interesting uh, is, is that 
like at least as far as Russia is concerned, um, you know, now that the war has started in Ukraine and Russia is thoroughly, you know, in the penalty box everywhere, um, what's happened is all the people who were doing all the, you know, concierge services and the money laundering and the legal services, they're all like running for the hills um, and everybody is firing their Russian clients and pretending they never did any business with Russia. And, and it's all very satisfying to watch all these people who are really so unhelpful and, and uh, in, in some cases, like, you know, trying to um, sabotage what I was doing, all finding themselves on the on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of morality. Yeah. And so looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, my personal view is we went through so many red flags or check posts that we could have you know, perhaps done more to stop. Putin's aggression, uh, be through all the domestic crackdowns in Russia itself, the killing of dissidents, but then extraterritorial killings, the illegal annexations of Crimea, shooting down at NH17, etc., the interference in the 2016 election. So Putin has sort of never really been genuinely penalised. Um, one of the things I like to contemplate, and it was debated about whether or not sanctions are uh, about deterrence or punishment um, when the war began. But do you believe that had there been a more parking up military support to Ukraine, had there been a more vigorous approach to sanctions of the Russian regime and Putin's regime, do you think that Putin may have been more deterred from the uh, the war that he started in February of last year? I, I absolutely think that, that we blew it. We, we had every chance to stop him from doing this. Um, and, and, you know, everybody um, uh, judges every decision they make based on the reward for their decision and the risk of taking a decision. And Putin is no different. And Putin has this long, right. long history with us where he's done a lot of terrible stuff. And you've listed off a whole bunch of them and nothing ever happened. You know, he invades Georgia <laughs> in 2008. Right. N nothing. You know, the, the United States... Uh, I think it was uh, Obama at the time says we encourage both sides to exercise restraint. <laughs> the, he, the Georgians, you know, were just fighting off an, uh, an invader and the, he's encouraging them to exercise restraint. Right. Um, and then then we have, uh, you know, the taking of Crimea. And somehow we all decided that this was not a Russian invasion. This, this was somehow like a they call them Russian backed separatists. So everybody agreed on this weird term, mm. Russian backed separatists. And I'm like, we can't get involved in the civil war. So-called little Soviets. green men, little green yeah. men, as Putin called them, right? Of course, they were like, they were, they, they were working <laughs> for the Russians, invading the, the foreign country. Right. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, they, uh, uh, you know, they started carpet bombing Syria and creating five million refugees and killing hundreds of, or, or you know, tens of not hundreds of thousands of, of civilians. And we're saying, well, it's a civil war in Syria. And like, we don't want to get involved. And, and uh, it's not our problem. And all, and all those assassinations. And, and, and so... You know, Putin is sit, sit there. He's sitting there and he's thinking, you know, these guys are so weak. They're, they're so weak. And and, right. and I think the, the, the nail in the coffin and the thing that like, gave him the absolute full green light was after no sanctions, no sanctions, no sanctions in any of these situation, situations, he watches us withdraw from Afghanistan and let the country fall to the Taliban. And I mean... You know, the, the, we were we were holding it together with like th a thread, there were like three thousand troops who weren't in combat. They were just you know in a fortified base, and we pulled those troops out, and the country fell to the Taliban. And Putin is watching this and saying, "These guys have no stomach whatsoever for any type of confrontation whatsoever. They're going to let a country fall to a bunch of like guerrilla warriors, and and they'll and they'll never do anything to me." 
if I do anything, because they, they they never have. And so we had a chance. Right. If if we had been come down on him like a ton of bricks in 2014 when he did uh, Crimea, he he would probably wouldn't have done this. Um, if he had seen the power right. that that we have, which we have, so now sanctions are no longer a deterrent. Sanctions are a punishment. And and anyone who says sanctions are not having any effect, let me tell you, they're they're absolutely devastating. So, you know, in Russia is a country where all the wealth is concentrated in like a top a thousand people. And if you sanction those people, right. then, every, then all the wealth is, is basically inaccessible. And this is the money. This is what I call Putin's offshore piggy bank is this money. And that money is not available. And by the way, his central bank reserve piggy bank or his war chest, $350 billion has been frozen. Um, and so right. sanctions may not have had the deterrent effect because we blew it for 22 years. But I think sanctions are having a very uh, hard impact on these people, and, and they continue to be rolled out, and they continue to prosecute people who are evading sanctions. And life is absolutely a total misery for, for Putin's cronies and for Putin himself because he relies on these people. Well, that's it because you know, one of the things about sanctions is they're a little bit of a slower burn, right? So we do them, and then the effect is not immediate. And so there's the financial slow crippling, but also – uh, the supply chain restrictions around their technological capacities and the ability to restore uh, their high-tech weaponry in the Russian army. So, you know, it's kind of like a slow-moving tra- train crash rather than like a missile exploding. So people tend to look, well, we did it, nothing happened. And, you know, we're only, you know, still less than a year through this process. You know, just picking up on your point about about the sanctions, you know, I always say Putin, people, I think, overrated Putin as this sort of three-dimensional chess player when really he's a gambler and he tends to gamble all in and his experiences the West tends to fold. And you know, when I was in Ukraine, you know, the first few days of the war, the West kind of sat back and watched and to see, and had, it, had Ukraine been toppled in 24 hours, I think we would have seen very little to no sanctions. It was the Ukrainian bravery that finally convinced the royal we to step up with weaponry and sanctions and do the things that we said we could never do, like kick them off the swift payment system and, and you know, uh, ban Russian oil, ban Russian gas. I mean, these things that were undoable ended up being done, but they were done too late, um, as you say. So I suppose now, looking at the world, you're looking at the, you know, the sanctions that are in place. What could be done, I suppose, to escalate the pain on Putin and the Russian Federation and what's feasible? And, and specifically, is there anything Australia could or should be doing? Well, the, uh, so we're, we're in a world now where we've started to um, sanction most of the important oligarchs, but there's a lot of oligarchs who haven't been sanctioned. If you look at the Forbes list, there's 118 uh, Russians on the Forbes list, and only about 40 of them are on the, um, on the various sanctions lists. What, what, where are the other 60? I mean, I, I promise you that, that nobody can get rich in Russia without being in partnership with the Kremlin. It's, it's just, it's virtually impossible. <laughs> and, and so they're right. all somehow connected to that. And then the second thing we could do is that we're in a world right now where the good countries, and, I, and, and this is really like binary, the good countries are, are imposing sanctions. And then the bad countries are letting Russia do business. So like Turkey and the United Arab Emirates and India. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally pejorative about this. I mean, you know, anyone who doesn't, um, you know, who's, who's trying to sit in the middle and just profit off this, that's evil. And um, I think that, right. that, that we have uh, in the West, and I thought this is, this is all of us together, collectively, we have an enormous amount of economic power. The United States, the European Union, 
um, Japan, Australia, Canada, UK, collectively control about 70% of the world economy. And if we were to say to, let's say, Indonesia, you know, um, it's fine if you want to trade with Russia and do business with them, but, you know, don't, don't do any more business with us then. You, you can choose. Up to you. You want, you want the whole world? Do you want a country that's like one, one and a half percent of the world uh, economy? Up to you. And I think that we would see people, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, not willingly, but, but, you know, by, as a matter of necessity, coming over and doing what's right. Um, and so I think that, that more could be done to isolate Russia economically, and we could really throw our weight around collectively. We can't do it individually, but we can do it collectively to say, you know what, you, know, you got to pick sides now. You're either on the side of good or you're on the side of evil. You can't be in the middle. No, I, I think that's a really good point. But unfortunately, you know, you always bump up against this debate um, in foreign policy, whether it's driven by values or driven by interests. And, yeah, the interest people always find an excuse for why something can't be done or if this is a little bit too far. But, you know, I, I share your view in the sense of this invasion. You couldn't have a more binary uh, good versus evil type situation. Certainly not since World War II. I think that we've seen such a an obvious aggressive and horrendous act um, by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so getting into the little bit of specifics of Magnitsky, you talk about the freezing of assets. So essentially, yeah, locking them, they can't access them. Uh, you know, Russia's had a lot of its oligarch sanctions, their money's frozen, their yachts are locked up. Uh, there's that bit, you know, the yachts all sailed into Turkey and other places where you can't get them, a lot of them. But nevertheless, uh, that was the, you know, basically making their lives um, a bit shittier uh, and, uh, you know, and, and you know, denying them the benefits of their, uh, of their stolen wealth. But there's a movement on now and Canada has done a bit of this in terms of, okay, the assets are frozen, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, we don't know the exact number, but maybe it's three or four hundred billion. How much of that should now be seized? And the difference, of course, being okay, it's locked away; they can't get it. Versus you now, now we're taking it, and we're going to use that for either um, re- reconstruction in Ukraine, reparations, or even helping fund the war effort. I've spoken to Ukrainian politicians about this. What, what's your view of that next step? Well, well, it's interesting because when, when I when I was working on the Magnitsky Act, which is the predecessor to all this stuff. Um, uh, I, I was never worried about getting the money for any. I mean, it was not. There was no objective to get the money. The objective was just to make sure that the bad guys couldn't have access to their money. So that was, I would say, the one structural, major structural flaw to the Magnitsky Act was that we were freezing and not seizing. And now, of course, as you mentioned, we, we're in a world where Russia has killed many, many, many thousands of Ukrainians. Um, they've destroyed enormous amount of, of infrastructure and property and damages going into the trillions of dollars. And Russia should pay for it. Um, and, and it just so happens that we have frozen um, at least $350 billion of central bank reserves, not to mention the oligarch money that's frozen. Maybe that's another 150 all added up. So there's a half a trillion dollars of money frozen. And it's, it's both moral um, and it's um, uh, uh, practical <laughs> to seize that money. And so um, that is something which, uh, so if, if I'm, you know, if I were to describe what my big goal is for this year and however many years it takes, is to take the skills that I've developed with using, you know, getting sanctions laws passed and the relationships I have and the networks I've created and use that same um, uh, experience base 
to assist the Ukrainians in not just um, uh, freezing the money, but but seizing that money for, as you say, for the defense and reconstruction and reparation uh, in Ukraine. And I think it's the most obvious thing. There's one thing standing in the way of that, um, and that is, uh, particularly on the $350 billion of central bank reserves, and that is the um, this uh, Russia is hiding behind this concept of sovereign immunity, which they're saying that this is state money um, and other states can't see, take other states' money. Um, you know, you can't see somebody's embassy and nor can you take our money. And, um, and so that's the biggest... rules of engagement of the international affairs. Right, and so it's very interesting because every politician, every person who's elected says, of course, let's grab that money, let's seize it. And then, you know, you've got all these people who are invisible sitting in the bureaucracy and the foreign off foreign ministries and State Department who are all saying, oh, that's impossible, we can't do that, that would upset the international world order and legal order, etc. And I'm saying, to hell with that. The, the, um, Putin has redefined international crime. We need to inter- redefine international law. And sovereign immunity, of course, should exist in, in almost all cases, except when a country um, commits a, a, a murderous, devastating act of aggression against a neighboring country, then, that, then they should be excluded from sovereign immunity. And so... That's the big plan for 2023. Uh, many, many people agree with that. And it's just a question of overriding um, uh, this bureaucratic resistance. And by the way, the same bureaucratic resistance that didn't want to supply tanks um, to Ukraine for, for a right. year, um, that, that was eventually overcome. I'm sure this one will be, too. Yeah, it is an interesting thing of this sort of like holding on to normative behavior that the other side is not adhering to, which then leaves you constrained in your responses it is a sort of a a wicked problem that we lock ourselves into and frankly in many ways that's exactly what putin and other bad actors have relied upon where they push the limits of what's possible and we don't respond the royal we uh you know the the western you know underwriters of the so-called international rules-based order but if one side is just flatly violating the rules um, the game's either ruined or you need to find a new way to penalise that person. You know? And so uh, you, you need to, or, or, or actor. So I, I, I share your view in terms of, I often wonder, you know, we immediately rule things out. And by ruling them out, you've now made it clear what the, uh, uh, the penalties are possible for the bad act, right? So Putin says, well, they'll never do this, so therefore I can do X. And so I think um, I, I think it's you know, broadening out those penalties is a really worthwhile thing. Now, um, I wanted to get your take. You know, you're someone that's you, t- you mentioned the Forbes one you know, top rich list and the number of Russian oligarchs. There's not as many Russian oligarchs as there once was. Uh, so it, quite unbelievably, uh, you know, I think we're at 23 that have fallen from windows. Uh, you know, clearly being murdered by Putin's regime or very unsteady on their feet, and depending on which of those versions you believe. So what do you, you know, what do you glean from this in terms of, you know, so you're very across what the, the oligarchs are like. What do you take out of these, uh, these killings or you know, punishments by Putin's regime of these people that have benefited from you know, the theft of Russian assets? Well, first of all, um, these are murders. There's this, you don't have so many coincidental, you know, right. uh, mysterious... Um, deaths all happening to wealthy people in a short period of time in the prime of their lives, falling out of windows, you know, having weird toad venom poison and all sorts of other nonsense. These are murders, first and foremost. 
wh- who's murdering who and why are they being murdered, um, it's actually um, different than what most people think. Most people think somehow this is, you know, these are dissidents or uh, people who oppose the war or against Putin. No, none of these people have ever said anything bad about the war. I know many people who have. They're all sitting in jail right now in, in punishment cells, the people who have the real, the real dissidents. These are all people um, who, for one reason or another, are sitting in front of a pile of money or a flow of money. Um, and in a world where sanctions have dramatically reduced the uh, uh, size of the economic pie, um, people are now looking for other sources of revenue. And so when you have something like that happen, it's a huge catalyst to getting people like challenging each other's wealth and trying to get it. And so what, what you have here is someone going to, you know, some guy at Gazprom Bank and saying, you know, you're in charge of a loan or you're in charge of a, of a this or a that. Please hand it over to me. And the person says, well, I can't do that because if I do, then the person who's getting it right now is going to kill me and said, well, I'll kill you instead. And so one, one or the other kills him. And, and then the next time that person goes to somebody, um, they say, look, I killed the guy from Gazprom Bank. Now you're going to hand over your, the stuff I want. And they say, yeah, I think I will. Um, and so this is all just about the pie shrinking um, uh, and people killing each other over money because they value money more than human life. That's, a, that's an interesting take. I had not heard that. So that's a, that is a fascinating insight because when it tends to get reported, it is, well, the oligarch X made a media statement, you know, mildly critiquing the war, but you're saying it's really just yeah. a, a scramble for resources, which I think is interesting. Now, you spent a lot of time in Russia. You watched the evolution of Putin. Do you, yeah, how early were you convinced that, yeah, unfortunately, that the democrat democratization of Russia was not going to happen under Putin? Yeah, because we had the Yeltsin news, which was chaos. Putin comes in, tidies things up initially, and then gradually the screws come down. Watching it from the inside, how early were you alarmed? And, uh, you know, clearly you know, what happened with the, you know, with your experience with your friend, uh, Magnitsky. But uh, I'd be just curious about watching this evolution of Putin from 2000 to 2023 and how you've observed that. Well, you know, it's interesting because when he first started, Putin wasn't, this, wasn't the same sort of swashbuckling, you know, murderous dictator that he is now. He was very cautious and scared and not very self-confident. And I, and, and I was kind of fooled by his, I thought he was just this uncharismatic technocrat. I didn't think that he was this guy. And so for the first like three years of his presidency, I was kind of, uh, I mean, maybe even a supporter of his because he was fighting the oligarchs at the same time as, as yeah. I was. Um, I think that it became obvious to me um, around 2004 going into 2005 that, that there was something wrong because originally he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, Mikhail Hordakovsky, in, in his pledge to de-oligarize you know, the um, uh, country. And I thought, great, one down, 21 to go, because there was 22 oligarchs. And then the next oligarch was Roman Abramovich. And instead of arresting him and taking his oil company away, he paid him $13 billion for his oil company and made him the um, governor of the Chukotka region of Russia. And, um, and I thought, well, wait a second, this guy is not... So that was the moment that I thought, okay, this guy is not honest, that he's actually a crook. Um, Right. And then it slowly went, and then I got expelled from Russia and, and all the other terrible things, and then Magnitsky was killed. And as as all that stuff happened, it became more and more obvious to me that it was a criminal state, not a uh, not a normal country. And so I was I was convinced by the time by the time that Sergei Magnitsky was arrested, 
that um, after we had exposed this enormous crime against the Russian government, and instead of going after the criminals, they went after Sergei, that that was when I I, um, I determined that, that that Russia was a criminal state, and um, and it's and I, I was screaming bloody murder for the last decade that these are this is not a normal country. These are criminals. They're murder, you know, right up to the top. I mean, these guys, you know, they have cabinet meetings talking about you know, uh, interest rates in one session, and then they just talk about who they're going to murder in the next. These are, you know, like, you know, cold-blooded yeah. mafia criminals. And nobody wanted to hear it. They all wanted to do business with Russia. And, uh, you know, they didn't want to believe me. They thought I was some kind of, like, extremist and, like, you know, exaggerating and emotional and so on and so forth. And it's really interesting. Now everyone says, oh, my God, you had it so right. And it's like, well, I, I, I get no joy from, from, from that because if they, people had listened to me, maybe we'd have a different outcome today. No, I, I, I share your uh, I share your, your feelings there, and it, it is a shame that uh, people didn't see those very obvious warnings. There was just uh, too much money involved to see them. Um, now, with the war going as badly as it has for Putin, and you, know, you mentioned a thousand oligarchs. I always say there's about a thousand people that run Russia. Nine hundred ninety-nine of them know it's going badly, but they can't tell the one guy. Uh, that believes it is or believes he can dig himself out. What, what do you see the, the options for Putin from here? Um, he's clearly determined to dig in because losing is not an option. But how do you see the domestic parking the, I guess, the military? You know, you're not a military expert, so I wouldn't ask you to comment on how the war may play out. But how do you see the impact of the war on his position domestically? Well, Putin, can, Putin is, he start, in my opinion, he started this war... Um, as a war of distraction, as, you know, after 22 years in power, people are getting tired of him, and he can't lose power because if he does, he loses his money, go, loses his freedom, and loses his life. And so he needs to stay in power. I think, out of window. I think he started this war to stay in power, you know, to distract people. And I think that that's the that's the the crux of it. And it, it, he thought he was going to win. And he thought that would be like a big, you know, keep him elevated for for five more years until he had to do something else. And now he's stuck in this situation where if he shows any weakness, if he compromises, withdraws, um, negotiates, any of that stuff is viewed as weakness and he'll and that that could lead to his downfall. So he's not going to do that. And there. And so he's a, a little man who's afraid of dying and he will do anything possible to stay in power in order to stay alive. And that means doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. And so the war will continue to go like it's going. He'll continue to call on more Russian um, uh, young men. To, to die on the battlefield to save his life. That's that's his plan. And I, I, I think the Ukrainians don't have the military, the, the sufficient military advantage to fully defeat Russia. I think that he can, he, we've seen what's happened over the last, you know, six weeks where, you know, he can just throw man, out, man after man after man into the battlefield. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, Sure, a lot of them die, and some Ukrainians die, and nobody makes any progress one way or the other. Right. You know, it's a, it's a time-honored Russian tactic of sacrificing the lives of young people in uh, waves of, you know, endless waves, uh, as long as it means uh, the regime's not defeated. Stalin was very fond of it. So um, can you ever imagine a democratic Russia? So casting forward, I mean, it's hard to see how Putin gets removed that clearly it's a, an internal question for the Russian people. But at the same time, we know autocracies are brittle. 
and we know that they can disappear. Now, Putin is very paranoid about someone killing him because he himself is a murderer, and he, you know, we always worry about what we're most guilty of. Uh, but can you ever see, you know, the the dissidents that you know, the, the pro-democracy Russians that you know, both that are arrested or are living around the world in isolation, or uh, do you um, do you ever see a, a world where Russia can join? Yeah, it happened with Nazi Germany. Could it ever happen with Russia? Well, I mean, I think that if if the Putin regime, if Putin fails in Ukraine, if he actually loses in Ukraine, there could be a um, a, a real um, comeuppance, and um, the you know all the regime people could all flee the country for their own safety, and you could end up having a, a total uh, you know change of circumstances. But I think that's a low probability event. I mean, I, I think the, the most likely thing is that we, we could be here 10 years from now, just like we are with Assad, you know, in Syria. You know, he was, you know, he killed half a million of his own people, created whatever, right. 10 million refugees. And, you know, no, it's, I was just in Davos. No one's talking about Syria at all. No one's talking about North Korea. And so I think the, the, unlike, the unfortunate outcome is that we're sort of uh, more likely to be in one of those scenarios than, than a democratic scenario. But it's not impossible. We've seen this happen before. It could happen. There's, but I think that the um, likelihood is very small. Yeah, no, look, uh, yeah, I, I share your skepticism, but uh, you can always hope, right? Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, one, the, the one difference between, uh, if we were to contrast what happened with the Nazi regime and, and, and Putin's regime, is that it, to build a democratic Germany, you had to have the total defeat of Nazi Germany. And so the, the, I don't think there's any scenario, even if... Ukraine were to expel the Russians from their borders and back into into Russia, there's no prospect of a total defeat. So you'd have to hope that that would be enough to trigger a collapse of the Putin regime, which I think is possible. Now, um, Bill, I could talk to you all day, uh, but uh, you're an extremely busy man. And so we've covered a lot of heavy terrain here. But before you go, there's a compulsory question for every one of our guests, which is, uh, barbecue question. It's enormously lame and always has a famously clunky segue from me. So, uh, you know, no doubt you've worked with a lot of Aussies over the years, but or even famous Australians. So, three Aussies at a barbecue with Bill. Who are they, and why? Um, uh, well, my my um, uh, I, I'm a big admirer of a young man named Drew Pavlu. Drew is a uh, I think he's 22 years old. He uh, Yep. He he's a um, anti-China activist. He stood he stood up to China at the University of I think it was University of Queensland, um, and uh, yeah, he got Queensland kicked University. out. University, yep, yeah, yeah. He got yep. kicked out, um, and um, he's been making enormous personal sacrifices to stand up for the Uyghur minority and so on. And I like those types of people. Um, and the other person is uh, sadly someone who's no longer with us, but. Um, uh, uh, is a, um, a woman named uh, Senator, the late Senator Kimberly Kitching. Um, yep. uh, she Kimberly um, died tragically and suddenly in her mid fifties um, about a year ago. And she was the Australian. Um, uh, um, she was the Australian um, uh, politician who read my book, Red Notice which is about my struggles with Putin and read about the Magnitsky Act and said, we need a Magnitsky Act for Australia. And I've never once, I mean, I, I never during this whole time traveled to Australia, but over Zoom with her um, plotting and, and advocating and, and lobbying um, 
over a two-year period, we went from her idea to getting an Australian Magnitsky Act. And it's, it's just so terrible that she's not with us because she could do so much more with this if she had been. Um, and, um, uh, and I guess the, the third one is um, uh, a, a guy named Francis Leach. Um, you wouldn't know and would know him. Francis is, um, uh, he was, a, I believe, a, a, some kind of sports journalist who I met in London um, uh, randomly, and um, he got excited about the Magnitsky Act, and he was the person who ran all the traps for me in the media in Australia and got me connected to all the right TV stations and newspapers and everything. And uh, those would be my three uh, Australians that I'd be having at the barbecue. I actually know all of those people, but uh, Kimba, uh, former Senator Kimberly Kitchen, was a, a friend of mine, and um, you know I worked closely with her within the Labor Party to, to pass motions, and eventually you know, through the Parliament pass a, a Magnitsky Act, which is, was fantastic to see, and you know we we dearly miss her. So uh, you know, uh, given that Kimba would beat your barbecue, I would uh, love to get along to that one as well, Bill. But uh, Bill, thank you so much. Uh, for coming on. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, good luck in the um, coming year or years in terms of um, fighting against the bad guys and, and locking down their ill-gotten gains um, and uh, fighting on the right side of history, mate. So thank you for what you do and uh, good luck. Thanks for a great conversation. G'day, Diplomates fans. A big thanks to Bill for coming on the show. I learned a lot, and uh, if you are interested in learning more about Magnitsky Act type sanctions, you can read Bill's books, uh, Red Notice and Freezing Order. They're fantastic reads, and I really recommend them to you. Now, got a question here from Judy. Judy asked me, Misha, what are we to make of uh, the Chinese hot air balloon, spy balloons in the United States? And should we be worried that they're using similar technology in Australia? Um... Good question. So a lot of people are talking about this right now. Uh, so, look, firstly, I guess the last party question first. Apparently, there appears to be no evidence that China has been using this balloon technology um, in uh, Australia. So I think we can probably take that as a given. Um, I think Australia would know whether or not they were in the airspace. But who knows? But having said that, I think it's a little bit more difficult Australia as a continent uh, to be able to do that without being detected. But um, look, the the whole thing about these spy balloons for me was just I actually kind of gave China better the doubt here that it was a stuff up rather than a surveillance operation. Turns out I was wrong, um, and you know everyone knows that I'm pretty skeptical of anything involving uh, the CCP. But it's just so incredibly low tech. I mean, these were used by the French, like you know, 500 years ago, well, maybe not quite that long, but a long time ago. And so um, this is not exactly a high-tech thing. The uh, the United States used a similar type of technology before the Cold War, really, um, you know, in the 50s, when Eisenhower was president. Uh, they had a, a project where they launched several hundred of these across the U- into the USSR, and uh, the Soviets said, after they shot down the majority of them, don't do it again. Um, so... Um, it's peculiar in many ways. What's more interesting about it, other than it being outrageous, obviously, um, what I took out of it was that it happened right before Blinken was due to meet Xi Jinping in Beijing. Now, normally Xi only meets with 
other heads of state. That's normal practice, but you know, a lot of the senior countries are saying that no, I'm only going to meet with heads of state. Uh, she was prepared to meet the uh, the state secretary of state, foreign minister of the United States, Anthony Blinken, and that's how desperate he is to try to reset the relationship. So it kind of, to me, says a little bit concerningly that the left hand's not telling the right hand what's going on. And also what's typical in these situations is when something happens, it can be hard to get the Chinese on the phone. So that's what happened on this occasion. Uh, the Chinese were difficult to contact. Um, and so that's concerning when you have sort of two superpowers being involved in an incident like this. The United States shot it down, obviously, shot down some others, it would appear. Um, the Chinese, I think, quite tellingly, have said, oh, everyone needs to calm down, but haven't really done anything in retaliation because I know they think they'll caught red-handed. But I think she would be very disappointed this happened right before he was meant to have his rapprochement with uh, the United States. So I think that's the more interesting thing here is, is Xi Jinping across all the intelligence-gathering enterprises of the MSS and other parts of his security apparatus. And if not, that's quite concerning. And also, why is China still resisting, I guess, high-level talks? Uh, during the Cold War, the United States and Russia, or the Soviet Union, had protocols in place to make sure that incidents didn't spill over into, into big incidents. Um, last time that we saw something like this, the United States had a spy plane shot down, and then a couple of years after the fact, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hopefully, don't see... The, uh, a similar escalation of events, but that's what can happen from seemingly innocuous things like low-tech spy balloons flying over Montana. Anyway, uh, great question. I think it's something that we're all going to be watching a lot more of. I hope you enjoyed the episodes. Please rate and review us. Until next time, bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.